Welcome to the She Wore Black podcast. I'm Agatha Andrews. Today, I've invited author Ruben de Goyado to talk about his book, The Family Izquierdo, a multi-generational story that follows a family that lives on the South Texas and Mexican border. We discuss authentic representation, mental health, curses, brujos, curanderas, Selena, and menacing grackles. This book captures the nuance of the people and places of South Texas beautifully. You can order your copy of The Family Izquierdo using my bookshop.org link to support the show as well as independent bookstores nationwide. That's at bookshop.org slash shop slash she wore black. You can also help out the show by following She Wore Black on Twitter and Instagram and leaving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us today. Now, on to the show. All right, Ruben, well, welcome to the show. This is definitely a long time coming. Thank you. Excited to be here. Yeah, I got excited when I saw your book on Twitter many, many months ago. And I would like you to tell us about the book. And you said somewhere that it took about 10 years to come around. Why don't you tell us about your journey to the book as well as the book itself? Well, I'll start with a little description of the book. Uh, The book covers decades in a family's life. It's intergenerational. You start with uh, the the grandfather and the grandmother, Papatavo Izquierdo and Valentina Izquierdo, coming to the United States, um, and then it follows the generations. And quickly, as I as I set it up, you see that uh, you know the, the the whole start of the the novel is this: they find a curse in the yard, uh, planted there presumably by a jealous neighbor, and then it sets off a chain of events where all kinds of crazy things happen over the course of probably like 18 months in the family's life. Um, and so that's the basic setup of, of the book. And, and yeah, I took, it's actually when I, I looked at the recent uh, literary magazine that I've gotten published in the first story that you see, or the, not, not the vignette, but the first story that you see uh, chapter is to Rocco, and I actually got that published uh, like in '97. So it's been, it's been like 25 years. Wow. Um, yeah, it's been a long time, and I've been writing, I've been writing stories about this family over the years, and the most recent one was uh, j- a few chapters that I wrote specifically for the book, you know, within the last couple of years. So I've been with this family for all, pretty much all of my writing life. So are you saying that the, that the stories are sort of a culmination of stories you've been writing over time, or did you sit down at one point after spending some time with these characters going, okay, I'm going to make a, a story that comes together about them? It, 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 would, it was crazy because what, the way it worked out was, so I wrote one story, that first one, um, and then maybe a, a year later, I wrote another and then every couple of months or so, I would write another one. And it was just over time. Okay. Um, and, if, and if you, uh, like my, my first book, uh, Throw, which is a, it's a YA novel, it's about the same family. It's about Cirilo Izquierdo. He's the first, uh, first Izquierdo to appear in a book. Um, so I had written that one um, actually kind of simultaneously with the other chapters. But yeah, it, it, it wasn't I just sat down 25 years ago. And I wrote all the stories. No, it was like every couple of years, a different one would come out because as I would write, 
um, I, I, I just started exploring this family, exploring the things that they were happening. And then I'd get inspiration for another story, uh, another chapter in the whole, the whole life of the family. And uh, I would just write them out. So it wasn't like I wrote them a long time ago. It's just been over time. Okay. Sure. Because I don't know. And have you seen the movie Mi Familia? from yes. the nineties yeah, because I, I had, I was like the story structure is very similar and I have the same sort of affection for every member of the Esquerra family that I have for every member of the Mi Familia family, people who don't know, um, Mi Familia, it starts off just like yours with like a couple that comes from Mexico to the United States. And then it's multi-generational kind of following various members around and, you know, into the senior citizen life, if you will, um, mm -hmm. it kind of culminates like when they're grandparents and it's like, they've all kind of completed a story. Um, and, and the family Esquerdo has very similar vibes. And so I, I have like such affection for all of them in the same way that I did for everybody in Mi Familia, which I saw probably 4,000 times because that came out at a time in the nineties where we were just starting to see actual Latino representation mm -hmm. in Latino stories, because to that point they were always getting Italians to play Latinos. And, and so you have like house of spirits and the only Latinos cast are like Antonio Banderas as a, as Banderas as the gardener and like, <laughs> And he's um, Spanish, and, right? Right, so. <laughs> right, exactly. And yeah. and then they have somebody else. I'm forgetting her name, but she was very famous. Play the maid, and like to this point, it was never actual Latinos in Latino roles or Latino roles with dignity. It was always something like a servant in some way. Um, so Mi Familia came out, and Desperado came out, and like Water for Chocolate was the big one for me as well. Mm -hmm. um, man, I watched that one and read that book over and over. Um, so it was like at an important time where I was kind of just discovering pride because to that point Gen X was really suffering from erasure of our culture mm -hmm. we had to at least in my experience like be nothing like we, we were never going to be white and we were never trying to be white but we couldn't be Latino either and be like accepted by our teachers fully or like like looked at for jobs in the same way or even trying to get into school or any kind of competition that you were doing like everything you had to have this like erasure of culture so in the early 90s when these things were coming out me familia like water for chocolate all of this I was like oh you know, my mom worked so hard to like instill this pride in me. And now I'm seeing actual representation and it speaks a lot to what real representation means. You know, there's this sort of performative thing, I think that publishers and movie makers and stuff still want us to do. Yeah. Then there's authentic representation, which I found in the family Esquerdo. And I just, I relished the experience of reading this book in the same way that I did with the, with first coming across those movies in the early nineties, because it's still something we have to fight for authentic uh -huh. representation. Yeah. I don't know what you think or feel or what your experience was about that. Well, you know, the, it's funny that you mentioned that film um, because there are a lot of similarities and, and I didn't actually see the film until probably, I want to say about 10, 10 years ago. Oh, okay. Um, so when it originally came out, I hadn't, I hadn't seen it, hadn't really heard of it. Um, and then I was, I don't know how I came across it and I watched it and, and the similarities, like, I was like, oh my goodness, like, 
because I was writing these stories, uh, you know, side by side, parallel to to that movie. Uh, you know, whoever whoever dreamt up the film, I, I don't mm. know who who wrote it, but whoever dreamt up the film, and then you even have like, a, if I recall, you have the one daughter who she becomes a nun. Yes. Um, and I have my kind of semi version of that with uh, Dina, uh, who's who's a nun yes. without the the habit and the orthopedic shoes, um, but you know, as far as like his representation goes, what, what I wanted to do with this book was yes, do representation, have them have people see what, uh, what a family is a Mexican American family living in South Texas is like. Um, but for me, uh, it, it, the, the representation, it, it goes hand in hand in writing. So when I sit down to write, I'm not thinking I need to right. uh, represent my people. I need to uh, do this. I'm just telling a story and it's a story through my lens uh, of my family. I, I, you know, I can't speak for every Mexican American family. I can't speak if, even for every family here in the Rio Grande Valley, South, deep South Texas. Um, but, but definitely when I sit down, I want to get the details right. So that for me, it's all in the details. Uh, and, and I think it was uh, David Bowles very recently. I, I listened to him. He was on, I think it was NPR. And he said, we find the universal in the specific. Yeah. And so I'm writing a story for, to, you know, for everybody to enjoy. I mean, we all have family dynamics. We all have, you know, grandmas, uncles and aunts and cousins for the most part. Right. Um, but I'm writing to my people, if that makes sense. And so yeah. as I write for everyone, I'm writing to people so that when you see a detail um, and you're like, oh my gosh, I remember that. Yes, that's me. So I'm, I'm doing that for you. That's like an Easter egg for you as the reader, you, you have that shared experience. Yeah. So that's really what I'm trying to do. And again, I'm not, I'm not, you know, actively thinking about representation, yes. but I think, I think as uh, uh, that's kind of what authentic representation is, is where you can't really write anything else. I mean, you can, I can go outside my lens for sure. But when I sit down and I'm, and I'm writing uh, my, my story, my history, my family story is that the details are going to be in there and that's what makes it authentic. Yeah, I really feel I'm I'm so glad that you said that you are not thinking about that when you're writing because I've talked about this with Isabel Gañas and and V Castro as well. There is still performative expectations people have of us and it drives me bananas because we want the freedom to sit down and write stories just like anybody else without having to think about well, what do they want to see from me? Do I have to throw one of these names in or do I have to mm -hmm. throw in like, because the thing is, is like, it feels very cringe when you read it as a Latino and you see something that you feel is like was thrown in there to appease some white gatekeeper who's mm -hmm. like, okay, if you're going to be the brown writer, like for our line, you have to do this or, or, or this is what people expect to see. And and then there's danger in that there becomes caricature, you know, and I, I did not get that when I read your book. And I don't get that when I read Vicastro or Isabel Cañas, mm -hmm. I feel like those are people writing who they are, what they see. And because of something you said very specifically that I was very struck by when I read your book, the detail sold it. Like mm -hmm. there was no question that 
this is just what life is like in the Valley. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> I know the Mercado Zaragoza. I know the mission this I want, you know, and, and I knew these, th- and not only that, I knew moments like when the, he got to pick the beef jerky from the jar, like how that was somehow better. Like oh, I did that as a kid too. And I yeah. know the difference, you know, <laughs> yeah. and like, those are the things that were just so exciting to see was like the detail. And I'm just sitting there thinking like, I've heard some writers talk about like making notes over some of the things, or is this just a visceral thing that happened when you were writing those details? Yeah, they, they came to me and I, I have to give, I definitely have to give a shout out to uh, my publisher Norton because they never, you know, my editor, uh, Nanyama and, and everyone at Norton, they never said, okay, let's see more of the immigrant story. We want to see Good. more of that. And, and there are a lot of great Im- immigrant stories. There's, you know, uh, I, you know, I'm not going to th- name any right now. I can't think of them off the top of my head, sure. but um, you know, you, you take this immigration story and a lot of times that's, that's what people want to read. Um, and unfortunately they, the, the, the trauma of, of a lot of times with immigration that sells. And yes. so the story I wanted to tell is definitely immigration is in there. You know, you see it at the very beginning when they're, when they're coming across and the reasons why he wants to be here, you know, Papa Tavo wants to bring his wife and family to the United States. But I, I'm I'm trying to tell a story about what happens after, right? Yeah, so, yeah. So that's the story that I think is not told enough. Where you you see a a relatively successful, uh, you know, Latino family, Chicano family, where you're not, you know, they're not struggling to survive. They've they've uh, built up a business. There's several business owners in there. Um, you know, so much so that one of one of them is able to give his uh, daughter a, a mm-hmm. quinceanera that's worth thousands of dollars, right? So that's the kind of story I wanted to tell is like what happens after this post-immigration period, um, but but you're still seeing the effects, right? So that's the other thing is you know the whole story, which I don't say in the novel, but it, it's kind of implicit there, is that there's this idea of immigrants that we have to fight each other to get the resources, right? So that's kind of the reason. Yeah why this neighbor is jealous and has, you know, cursed them because he's, he's envious of the success his neighbor has had. It's interesting that you say that too, because that's just one of our stories really, because for example, when I read this, I felt like I knew these people. Like I, I, I'm like, I know exactly who these people are. And, and I pictured my version of them of each of every character. And what's interesting about this though, is that this was very much like my mother's family, but my mother's family has been here for centuries. And Mm -hmm. so what people don't always realize is that we don't always have an immigrant story. A lot of times, like in my mother, my mother's entire family has been here since before this was Texas. (laughs) I mean, it's all colonialism, but her, like their story has been here since like Texas came or, or the U S came to them, not the other way around. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then with my dad's story, um, like his family, my, my grandparents are first generation. My great grandparents came from Mexico, but their story is so different, you know, and their, their dynamic is so different. Like my dad, my, we would go to the Valley. So I knew all these places that you wrote mm-hmm. about. We would go to the Valley to see both my dad's grandparents, my great grandparents, and then my mother's brother who moved to the Valley. But my great grandparents were all like that family is very stoic. 
we don't do the hugging. We don't do that. I mean, it was very like quiet and, and very Mm -hmm. like they're all. And I mean, the thing is I'm the same way. If I'm honest, like I would, I'm a hermit (laughs) and and like being social, it takes a lot of energy for me. Like I'm exhausted after a podcast because it takes a lot of work for me to be social. Whereas my mom's family, they do the hugging, they all gather around, they do the parties, they have the music, they all dance all the time, you know? (laughs) So like, I, but there's like, it's wild because they're the ones, my dad's family is the one with the immigrant story, Mm -hmm. you know, but not my mom, but the, my mom's family is the one I saw in the Izquierdos. So Mm -hmm. people don't understand like how diverse and rich and nuanced our culture is within these borders yeah for sure and i i I completely relate to that because i also had like my that's so if i had to pin it down like these kids would be more like my dad's side of the family um and then the other side of the family which is unexplored in fiction for me at least is my mom's side which uh very established uh in hidalgo uh, texas my 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 grandfather was uh, a deputy marshal with the city of Hidalgo, you know, very uh, much a part of the community and had been there for, for generations. And so uh, it's the same, same type of situation was, they were there before Texas was even Texas, you know, or, or part of the United States. And so you see that you see the dichotomy between the two families and there, there's just all kinds of stories that I don't think people, people get when they think about Mexican Americans along the border, they, they don't see that a lot of times. What I love about that part of Texas is how fluid it is. When I, when I go to the border with my family, like, of course we cross over, you know, and it's just like something you do for the day, you know, <laughs> and you come back and then like you park your car, you go in, you get your avocados that they have to cut down the middle. Cause you can't bring the seed and they put the chile in the middle and they bring yeah. it back. And it's the greatest thing you've ever had in your life. You know? <laughs> Um, but you know, that's why I knew like the specific, I mean, I know Renosa and Progreso very well because I mean, I spent a life crossing over and it was nothing. It was just like going to the mall, you know, you just, it's just something you park your car and you go do, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Every day, Um, every, every weekend, you know, like, like I said, you see that scene where he takes the family to the, the Mercado. And, you know, they're there buying toys, they're there buying, you know, yes, medications at the boticas and Reynosa. And it's, it, it was one of those things for us anyway, growing up is, you know, because my, like I said, my, my parents lived in Hidalgo, is that we would go over just for the day and go shop and it was no big deal. We just walk over and, you know, we, we felt at home in, on, on both sides pretty much. Something I love about one of your characters, because, and, and again, you show the complexity and nuance of like Papi Tavo, mm-hmm. because he has, uh, he's got a personal struggle, you know, whether it, like it's anxiety and, you know, he has, because you know, going back to the brujo and the curse and everything else, he has this anxiety. He's worried about protecting his family, but mm-hmm. you still show him, you don't show him as just that you show him as a father as a wonderful neighbor i mean the the chapter where he's giving the haircut to the little boy who's um on the autism spectrum and Mm -hmm. the care and the words like oh i want to cry thinking about it it was just such a beautiful chapter because 
that's like my son's bus driver because my son's also on the spectrum and they, and he has a bus that comes and takes him to his campus um, that, that he just loves that school. That's like, like other kids like him, but that driver, I was like, he's papitavo because he talks like he has all the same kindness and nuance and understanding and gentleness and everything but he has also got his own demons and I love mm-hmm. that you made him a whole person like we're so used to being cultural caricatures you also tackled this at not just making us not cultural caricatures mm-hmm. but you made mental illness like a whole an experience as a whole human mm-hmm. you know not just a, a plot point you know what yeah. I mean yeah. And that, that was important for me. Um, I'm, I'm an autism dad myself. Um, and so I wanted to, I wanted to show a couple of different things. So you see those vignettes and, and they're, they're like memories. There's these snapshots of Papa Tavo, who he was prior to the, the main narrative. And mm-hmm. so that, to me, that was very important, very crucial uh, because you see what they've, I wanted, I wanted the reader to see what has been lost, right? Yeah. So you have Papa Tavo now and he's struggling with anxiety. He's struggling with, you know, all these things that uh, he's feeling and he's, he's not able to always uh, communicate those in the, in the present, but I wanted to show who he's been, right? The experiences he's had and who he is as a, as a father, who he is as a neighbor. Um, so that was real important for me. And then the other, the other piece that you touched on is, so I, you know, I'm a, big reader of, of, you know, Chicano lit, uh, Latino lit. Mm-hmm. And um, there, there are quite a few books, I, I would say more, more so than not, that, that um, don't really get into the whole mental health aspect yeah. of, of our culture. And, and I think it's, I think it's kind of endemic. It's not something we, we like talking about. You're correct. Um, That's absolutely it's, it's, true. We, we don't bring it up. And certainly as, a, as like a Chicano man, um, you know, if you're struggling with anxiety, you're struggling with depression, that that's not something that men will typically talk about. And so I kind of wanted to surface that a little bit. I'm no expert on mental health by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but I thought, you know, this is kind of an important conversation we need to have. And, and I hopefully I've done it well and, and given it the, you know, the care and attention it deserves, yeah. but also showing, like you said, the whole person. So yeah. it's not about, you know, Papa Tavo being, th- this is who he is but it's about who he's been and who he, you know, is becoming. Well, I mean that you, I hadn't even thought to articulate that part because it's so funny when you see things that, you know, intimately, and this is why representation is so important, like proper representation and not this American dirt bullshit. You, you touched on something so important that somebody who's not part of our culture would never be able to understand, which is what you just said about how that is a difficult topic for our culture to talk about. Mm -hmm. And it's not, and I'm like, yeah, you know what, until you just articulated it, I'd never even thought about that, but it's absolutely true. And you just like already like that made a million bursts of things in my mind happen because I'm like, I can think of all the different people like who have actively not wanted to talk about it, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but it is absolutely true. And I think what you did with this book then is made that very safe, a very safe conversation. Um, and so thank you for, for doing that, because if that yeah. was a conscious decision, not only did you do it well, but you did it beautifully. Thank you. Thank you. You're, and you're it, welcome. Was just, it, it was important to me to, to make that uh, as, as well done as I could. 
It was beautiful. I'm thinking also of like when they go to the Mercado in Reynosa and mm-hmm. um, is it Celio? Cirilo. Yes, that wanted the, the knife. Yeah. And it's something interesting. I thought that was a really interesting chapter. And then again, how we see that knife throughout the, the book, because, you know, we're always connected to knives, right? And mm-hmm. <laughs> people always like, yep, you know, Mexicans and their knives or whatever. But what you showed again was something that was not a stereotype. What you showed with that chapter was the care and the thoughtfulness and the precautions and like the, the need to earn it, the need to take care of it, the need to kind of how things are passed down. So you see that Papatavo tells him that, you know, he, 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 he makes it a very, it's a big deal when he does it. And he says, you know what, we're going to keep it in my drawer until you're a certain age. So yeah. he doesn't just, you know, right. willy nilly give it to him. He's like, you can come look at it when you're at my house. Right. He tells him that. And then the lessons he imparts to Cirilo, Cirilo imparts to his young cousin, right? His, his, his cousin, little Gonzalo, um, when, when they're sitting in the car in that one scene, he tells them, don't ever open it up in a car. And then you see, I won't give it away what, right. what, what happens there, but you see that you see that whole thing turned on its head um, in that there is, I, I think there's a good kind of masculine, masculinity um, that, that you see represented throughout the book. Yes. But, it, you know, there's also this toxic mix masculinity that can creep in uh, if we're not very careful because to me like you, you take Papa Tavo, he's got great tendencies he's a provider he cares for his family uh, which in, in a lot of ways he's paternal he's you know those are some good masculine traits I would say um, but it can easily uh, you know turn into the other thing of being toxic yeah. which you you see somewhat in that in that uh, end of that chapter. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was, it was that's that going back to not only did you do all of these things well, but you did them beautifully. And I cannot recommend this book enough that you see me be been, I've been retweeting all of these things that you keep posting. Cause I'm like, it's great. I hope people pick this up, Thank but let's, you. let's go back and talk about, I, and I, and I sent this to you in a message because one of the first things you said to me when I asked if you wanted to be on the show was that it's not a horror book, but I told you that I felt I wanted to have it on, have you on anyway, because of course I do. You're from Texas. Of course I want you on the show, (laughs) but, and from South Texas too, you know, you know, the same people I know, Mm. but I, what I love about your book is that it shows an element of our culture that we embrace, but we don't, see it the way other people might see it, which is you have the curses and the curanderas and, you know, even with religion, religion is scary to me. I went to Catholic school and I mean, like I saw the like various relatives with those same prayer rooms that you have in here and -hmm. like pictures of Jesus scared me. because there was always thorns and there was snakes mm-hmm. and, and stuff in there too. And, and there was like this kind of weird punishment thread in my brain, like, oh, I better be good. You know, <laughs> I just felt like I was like, these are things that people might find frightening, but we sort of embrace them in a way that is just who we are. Some people have asked me like, well, why did you set up a Gothic or horror podcast? They kind of see a 49 year old woman. And I'm like, "Mm, it's just, it's always been there. (laughs) And, and I was hoping that you could speak to that because I feel like we know right from birth, like 
curanderas, we know La Llorona, we know Cucuy, we know all of these things. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you could speak to that, because I feel like maybe as children, we're afraid of La Llorona and Cucuy, but as, as adults, we kind of look back fondly, like we think about them almost with an affection, you know? Um, So I don't know, I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit. I I just, I think in, in, in the Mexican American, Mexican culture, the veil between what we see and what we don't see is very thin. Yeah. It's gauze-like. And, and so, uh, when, you know, you talk about that whole, you know, that, that certain, certain things like that other people would say, man, that's, that's like morbid or that's macabre. It's not so much for us because like, for me, I grew up hearing stories of La Llorona, stories of, uh, El Jinete Sin Cabeza, which is our version of the Mex- the Headless Horseman, mm. the Weeping Woman, like I said, La Llorona, the uh, Mano Peluda, which is the hairy hand, which will come get you. If, if, you know. <laughs> and notice how I'm laughing because I'm like, oh, these stories, you know. Yeah, you know, it'll, it'll it'll get your little toes if you if you try to get out of bed, and yeah. you know, as soon as you get out of bed, it's gonna grab your toes and tickle you and <laughs> take you away. Um, so we grew up. We grew up hearing those, and to me, they they don't scare me uh, as much as uh, they're always. You know, there's always a little caution there, and so I think the caution to me is is that um, it they're set up in such a way that we we're going to show good behavior, right? We're, right? They're cautionary tales so that we you know we don't sneak out at night and and uh, or the kukui's going to get you or what have you. Um, but like the, the whole, and then getting to the, and I'm kind of jumping around here, but getting to the, like the religion piece is, it is very much a part of our culture, right? So I couldn't, I couldn't write this book for me without doing that because, you know, in my family, we, we are very spiritual. Um, a lot of us are, you know, a lot of my family members are Catholic. I myself, have, I'm like non-denominational mm-hmm. Christian. Um, and, and, and you don't see that interplay in, in books. A lot of times it's just this kind of pat, okay, everybody's Catholic. This is where it's at. And it's not like that in our families, you know, you'll have somebody who's a holy roller on one side, they go to a Pentecostal church and, and then you have somebody who does go to the Basilica every Sunday at 5 PM, you know? So to me, just showing that how all those things uh, play together uh, was very important, but at the, at the core of it, is is this idea that uh, there's there's just all these different shades of our culture, right? Um, but who we are as a people, we're we're not a monolith. Is what I basically one of the, one of the points I was trying to get across. Uh, that is one of the biggest things you know that I took away from not just like your story, but even going back to Mi Familia. That's mm-hmm. one of the reasons why I watched it so many times because I'm. I identified with that too. And that, yes, our families are so complex and have every different kind of character, just like any other family would. And then, which means that we as a culture are not a monolith, you know, Mm -hmm. but yes, we have common threads and common, you know, things that we're aware of like aesthetic or, or, or uh, folklore or different things, but we are still individuals and kind of going back to that idea of caricature, like, when we're not representing ourselves or when we're writing in a way where we're trying to appeal to what people think we will be, which is why, and I said this in my interview, like Isabel Cañas and I were talking about like 
how much Sandra Cisneros hurt our feelings with her response to American Dirt, because she's like, well, if it means that people wouldn't pick up a book about Latinos that, you know, if they'll pick it up, you know, isn't that a good thing? And we're just like, (laughs) you know, because the thing is, is like, if I never read another book that has cartels in it ever again, I will, it will not be soon enough. And the reason why I'm going to separate Gabino's book from this is because he is putting a mirror on the U.S. saying, hey, you know, you're the one supplying the guns and you're the one that are demanding the drugs. Like, (laughs) he's t- he's got an entirely different spin that people aren't like they're not ready to have that conversation uh-huh. <laughs> so that's why I feel like his book is different but like going back to like growing up seeing Miami Vice and all out of that kind of it's like god damn it if I never see another one of these <laughs> cartel stories again because we're more than that you know and um like I talked about I don't know if you ever watched like those Alfred Hitchcock presents growing up, but there, there was a Ray Bradbury story that they did that takes place in Mexico. And it's the one where like a man rents a grave space for a year, like, and, and his family can't pay for it when he dies after a year. So the guy digs them up and puts them in this like cave where he keeps all the bodies of people who couldn't pay for their grave space so there's like a little boy that wanders in to find his dad all of it is very speedy gonzalez looking it's Mm. like the landscape and the what they're wearing and the way they speak and everything else and i just remember seeing that as a kid being so disgusted i wasn't even scared i was just disgusted with what i was looking at you know that's what i mean about performative versus authentic like you showed nuance and you showed um, like diversity, diversity within a family of like neurodiversity and like every other kind of like socioeconomic diversity, like you showed all the things and that's what happens with authentic representation. I just thought it was fascinating. Thank you. And, and uh, so I have a big, it's a big family and, and, you know, I don't know if you saw the, the, like the family tree, there's, there's 10 siblings. So, Mm -hmm. So you have the grandmother, grandfather, of course, and then you have the 10 siblings and they have kids and it's at a very specific time in their, in their life. So talking about representation, I, I, I created in such a way that I could have a canvas, yeah, uh, a large canvas to be able to, to show that representation within, within the family, because like even my family, you know, we have, I have, I have family members at one end of the, the I'm, I'm in Cameron County. I have family members in Hidalgo County uh, so we're all, and we're all different. We live in da- different neighborhoods, but the deal is, is that when we come together, what's interesting is a lot of those differences, either they'll come up a little bit, but, but more often than not, what happens is, is that those differences go, you know, slide away mm-hmm. and that we have our similarities. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of, what, where I've kind of found that was, uh, I lived in, uh, I lived in Oregon for 11 years and what I did not see at the time, and this was, you know, like in the early 2000s um, when I lived there, what I did not see was like a, a valley Mexican-American where, you, you know, we've been here for generations. Um, you know, the majority of the, the students that I had, they were, you know, recently arrived. Um, and so even though I had, you know, I was born here and I'm, I'm second generation on one side, third generation on, on the other, these were first gen kids. Um, you know, they saw differences, but, but what was, what was beautiful was that we saw more similarities in each yeah. other. Right. 
And then, and then when I would get together with other uh, educators, uh, Chicano educators, you know, we'd have one from Idaho, we'd have another one from, from the West Coast, we'd have, uh, you know, a Puerto Rican person from, from uh, New York, we would come together and those differences really, I mean, we had them, but we found similarities. Yeah. You know, we yeah. found more similarities in each other and, and we found, you know, strength and, and, and just power in that. Uh, of just being having having those similarities give us I guess strength and just being able to bond with one another yeah yeah well that's why you know it's especially important that we support libraries right now that we support in education proper representation cultural representation because I know how it feels to not have that my mom tried really hard to make sure that I had access to things that you know, looked like me, whether it was a book mm -hmm. or a toy or whatever. And like, when I was growing up, the closest thing she found was like Juan Epstein from Welcome Back Cotter, who's not even Mexican. <laughs> I had the Welcome Back Cotter dolls. And then she just like started to, I'll just settle for a brunette. Like I'll take anything at this point that just so that I could feel like I mattered, you know? And, um, and so it was just like a real big deal uh, for her when she discovered Sandra Cisneros and I discovered like water for chocolate. And, mm -hmm. and, and I understand like for a long time, I was, you know, again, going back to that idea of, well, you have to be nothing. Like I really, it's really important for me and anybody listening that you really just go out of your way to support libraries and support, you know, because a lot of it is literally about erasure of culture and they're and mm -hmm. it's a concerted effort like it's an effort to do that and that's the agenda and I hope that that your book kind of kind of helps in that fight to make sure that we're there and seen and and it's all positive like I just love it I just love it like there's no I this book is like cake to me like it, and what I mean by that it's like it's so delicious I can't stop eating it <laughs> I want to go back in and read it again you know <laughs> so. and I, I've heard that like I, some of the reviews that uh, and thank you for that but yes. but some of the reviews i've heard are very similar uh is that we don't want to leave the family yes and so i kind of like it and there's a lot of tough stuff that happens in the book yeah. it's not all you know parties and and pachangas and and piñatas right it, there, there's a lot of tough stuff thank that happens in the book but it, at the end at the end of the day you know it's a family that loves each other yeah they have a great faith they uh they they do their their best if there's if there's a threat to the family that's outside all those differences go aside and they focus on each other right yeah so that that's kind of what i wanted to show is is in in some ways they're they're very dysfunctional but at, at the end of it really the love the love that they have for each other you know ultimately puts all that puts up puts all that to the side yeah well, let's talk about two things before I let you go today, because I could really just talk to you all afternoon. So in here, two, right? I know there's two things in here that I'm, I want to draw attention to because it's something that we see a lot if you're from Texas, but I don't know if people understand like why they're such big deals. Let's start with Selena. You know, I think a lot of people kind of get the Selena thing, but like I'm from Corpus and she's only two years older than me. So I grew up seeing her 
every weekend on Domingo Pena, my grandpa would come over, my grandma would come over and they put on Domingo Pena. And there's this like awkward 12 year old, like in her little super shiny clothes, looking just like the guys in Menudo because she had that little short haircut, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I would see her at Bay Fest and I would see her at like all these different things growing up. And then now she's La Reina. Like she, like the whole, like uh, the chapter where you talk about her is like, someone's trying to convince the the Catholic church to make her a saint. And I'm like, she's past sainthood. (laughs) She is beyond sainthood. because and it's like just so funny because again it's something that I always saw grew up growing up and mm-hmm. took for granted really until we couldn't take her for granted anymore and then she like just grew and grew and it was just amazing yeah so for, so for me so I I at the time when she was popular I didn't have that experience because I you know Corpus to us was it was like a thousand miles away <laughs> even though it's <laughs> two hours yeah it's but like it two hours like, right yeah uh but you know oh, it's so far to corporate to go to corpus um so i i didn't have that relationship with with selena or her music how i got to know selena was through uh watching puro tejano i don't know if you remember that show there was i a show do puro my puro grandma tejano. and my aunts would watch that yeah so that that show was on and you had rock and roll james and i mentioned this guy, rock and roll James, and he'd always come out, hey, aquí estamos para celebrar, you know, and he'd, he'd oh do a thing. Uh, and and, uh, and then there was Johnny Canales, which was, I think it was on Sunday mornings. Yes. So Johnny Canales would always have, have different acts on. So that's kind of how I got to know her more peripherally. And, and of course, you know, later on when, when uh, you know, she unfortunately got murdered, um, she, she blew up. And so yeah. the, the, like the, the whole impetus, like this story, the way this story came about, and, and just you said it very well, is you have this woman, Lourdes, who's, and you don't find out quite that she's writing a letter to the Archbishop of, of Brownsville to, to proclaim her to be a saint because she's committed these miracles, is I was, I saw a Mexican tabloid, and, and it had a picture of Selena on it, and the Mexican tabloid said, uh, su voz cura a los enfermos, her voice cures the sick. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's a story. Yes, there, is. there is a story there. And so I got that, I got, you know, I pulled that, I still have it, right? I should show it to you. I pulled off that tabloid off of the, off of the rack and I'm like, I read it and I'm like, okay, I'm not going to tell this story, but there's a story here. And, and then you have what you have of uh, this, this, uh, you know, Izquierdo daughter dealing with, dealing with this eating disorder um, and then, you know, presumably being healed. But again, in the, you'll notice in the stories that I do, there's always something going on behind the scenes, right? So is it the music that heals her or is it Victoria praying over her? Right, right. right? And because you, you always have these little, what, what's actually going on here. So that kind of threw that in there. But yeah, I had, I had fun with it. A lot of people like that story. Um, and I, had, I definitely had fun writing it. Well, and I love that you were inspired by a Mexican tabloid. Like that's perfection. That's absolute perfection. Oh yeah. I, I was yeah. like, oh, I got to do something with this. This, uh, is, this is awesome. I, I got to definitely write this one down. I'm so pleased you did not pass that one up. Uh-uh. <laughs> yeah. When, and it's funny because again, growing up, seeing her as part like every weekend and like, again, every time we'd have these things called like Bay Fest or Buck Days or just basically citywide festivals, like she was always there, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, so when she died, it was, it was striking to me because I had always 
seen her, but I didn't know the impact she would have until she died because, Mm -hmm. um, or that she had already had, um, because like I was working at the time I was community college. This was before I transferred into university of Texas. So I was working at the art museum there. I was an art major and I was working at the art museum, which is at the end of the cul-de-sac on shoreline. People don't know the the setup of Corpus Christi, but there's like a a long, beautiful street that line goes along the bay. And at the end of that street is a cul-de-sac that has the Mm -hmm. art museum and a big auditorium. And to that point, it had always been called the Bayfront Auditorium. Now it's called Selena Auditorium. Um, But I was working at the art museum and people started coming in like one after the other. I knew that they were having like the visitation with the open casket and everything across the way, which was freaking me out a little bit. (laughs) But um, people started flooding in to use our bathroom and we had to close and because it was just like people couldn't even get in to the art museum parking lot. And when I walked out, like they had to part the crowd and the entire way down shoreline was a line of people waiting to go see Selena, like thousands, as it turns out, several thousand people mm-hmm. were there. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I thought it was just people from South Texas who would know or care. I had no idea, but I've been, you know, very proud ever since to know like, oh, well, you know, she's from Corpus, like I'm from Corpus, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. and to know like, that goes again to just being visible and mattering and, and yeah, it was just, it was just really amazing. And I appreciate the impact that she had. And then I thought about like all of those people that were lined up on shoreline when I was reading the story about like her, her doing miracles. (laughs) I was like, that's amazing. I love that. And, and I, I researched that one. So uh, I actually went and, and I read up on, um, her, her final tour and the stops on the final tour. Um, so, the, you know, Villarreal, which was the, the main venue, uh, there, was a, there was a tour that she did there. She filmed the show. Um, and, then, and then I said, okay, what was her set? What was her, her set list or playlist or whatever? Yeah, yeah. And, and the, the first song was, uh, I think it was Amor Prohibido. Oh. I'm like, okay, I'm going to put that in there. So, yeah, I did, I did quite a bit of research and I had fun with that. And then, you, you know, the thing that I think the thing why she has resonated and still continues to do so is that at the time we, you know, South Texas and, and, and she's from Corpus, right? So Corpus isn't my region, which is the Rio Grande Valley, right? But, but she represented like us, you know, at the time yes. when, we, when we didn't have a lot of that, right? So we have a lot of, we have a lot more heroes, but I can't recall um, at that time having, having somebody who represented us as, as much as, as, as she did of, of the whole yeah. Tejano culture. Um, and, and it just, it, it came at a time when, when I, I think a lot of people needed that. And, and then to see that she's resonated with other people, that's kind of what I'm hoping to do. And I think what any, any good uh, author will do, who's, you know, a Chicano or Mexican American is that I'm going to tell you, I'm going to show you who we are, right? I'm going to show you our representation. Um, but also you're going to see something of yourself. You're going to relate to something that I'm doing that may not be unique to your culture, but it's unique to the human condition. And I think that's something she brought it very well. She's still resonating with little children even. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. Like, I'm sure you've seen that viral video where you have like the little three or four-year-old girl, like hitting the piñata. She's dressed as Selena and she's hitting a Yolanda piñata. Yeah. (laughs) And then, um, you know, when Uvalde happened, not only did everybody I see 
like the parents and everything look like everyone I ever knew growing up in South Texas, right. but you'll occasionally see like a Selena shirt or something. I mean, still resonating. Yeah. You yeah. know, still so powerful. The other thing that you wrote about, which I thought was amazing because it's like, I don't know if there, you can be from Texas and not have a grackle story. <laughs> And I remember Gabino posting something about like, I think I'm going to write about crackles. And a lot of us were like, yeah, we all know about these crackle situations mm-hmm. um, because like you can't go to HEB in the fall and not feel like Hitchcock didn't even know the oh beginning my of it. You know? yeah, it's wild. <laughs> yeah, People don't get that. It, it's like the birds. It really is it's crazy. It's so loud when uh-huh. we, when you, when you see them and like, I, I mean, and they're everywhere, not just at HEB, but HEB is for whatever reason, one of the places like where they, they love to hang out. And so like, if my son goes with me to HEB, he has to put his noise canceling headphones on when it's grackle season, because <laughs> the crackles are so loud. And for people who don't know, they're these kind of bluish black birds. They're not crows and they're no. not ravens, but they're like smaller version. Like they're not even the same subspecies or whatever like they're they're not corvids but they're these black menacing <laughs> little creatures with with yellow piercing yes. yellow eyes right they uh. have these yellow eyes and so that's another thing i'm like you know what nobody has written a story about grackles because the the the, the, the that chapter that whole yeah. that whole chapter i wrote that years ago that was probably like 10 years ago when i started writing those stories about dina and the grackles yeah, yeah. Um, and so they're just they're just ever present. Um, they are. And, and, the, and the sounds they make. Yes. Uh, and so that like I had to because I wanted people to understand what they were. I, like I wrote I don't know if you remember I wrote that little definition of, of the sounds that they make the, the different uh, croaks and, and their piercing yellow, yellow eyes, the clicks, all the sounds. Oh my and gosh. I was like, so that's rife for, for good fiction right there. Because they're, cre- they're, they're creepy in some ways, but if right. you're, you know, you're just used to seeing them when, when they gather at the HEB, you know, as, at dusk and, and there's just thousands of them. I have a work in progress with grackles, like features grackles because they are freaking terrifying and they're everywhere. But mine, of course, is like swoony gothic, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's a very different story. But um, I mean, I think everyone's going to write about grackles differently. So I hope Gabino does write his story because I want to see his too. And of course, I'm, I'm going to finish mine because I want to see everybody's because I love that HEB still factors in. <laughs> it's like, yes, they gather in fields and along the highway in these massive crowds and they will form black clouds in the sky yeah. as they fly together. They're terrifying. Uh, but I do think it's hysterical that these like menacing little creatures are also just part of the HEB story, which is a local grocery store for people who aren't from Texas. Yeah. Um, but I just find, so they're like menacing and hilarious. <laughs> and and the, the thing I love about them too, is that they're very Mexican. Yeah. I mean, even, even the, that scientific name is Quiscalus Mexicanas. See, they're and I just Mexico. took it for granted. Like I didn't yeah. even think about that. Yeah, hmm. they are. And, and, and to me, when I think about them, it's like, if you're from Texas, it's like music to your ears almost. Cause, oh, I, cause I remember when I would, when I lived like chicharras. up in, yeah, yeah. Chicharras in the tree. When I would come down from, from Oregon and I'd get off the plane and you could just say like, all their crazy, crazy sounds, wild sounds. I was like, ah, okay. I'm here. You're home. I'm home. <laughs> I'm home. 
definitely. Oh, well, speaking of home, that's very much how your book felt. And I think that's a perfect way to end our interview. Thank you so much for spending your time with me. I hope that everybody goes out and enjoys the family. I really did. It was such a joyful experience for me to read this book and then get to talk to you about it. So thank you. Thank you so much. It was a joy. Thank you for all your kind words and thank you for doing the show. I love it. Thanks for joining us today on She Wore Black. You can follow the show on Instagram and Twitter if you follow the links on our website at sheworeblackpodcast.com. We have some great episodes coming your way, so be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Google Podcasts. You can also support the podcast by shopping at our online bookstore at bookshop.org slash shop slash sheworeblack. Every purchase you make through our storefront, be it the books on my lists or any books you find in a search from our front page, will support the cost that goes into show production as well as supporting independent bookstores nationwide. Thanks again for joining us today and happy reading. Mm -hmm.